RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This first meditation is called In Response to Fear, and in it I discuss the earliest origins of insurance. What were the social and developmental prerequisites for insurance? What were the things that needed to be in place before our ancestors could even contemplate the concept of insurance? And as we go on that journey together, we will discover that insurance was birthed within the human soul, indeed within the darker recesses of the human soul. And we will learn that almost from the outset of recorded human history, insurance has insinuated itself within our cultural story as a means by which we try to soothe our demons. It's a fascinating story, and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. To Peterborough and beyond. But let's start with space. That's space as in the final frontier, as in the place where no one can hear you scream. That space. As opposed to any other type of space, such as the small cupboard under your staircase at home or the space that is the object of our desire when entering a car park, or the pause between this word and... No, this is about the space, with a capital S, that spreads from one edge of the universe to the other, the space that holds the stars in the near infinitude of its hands, the space that envelops our tiny island of a planet, surrounding it with a hostile environment of dark matter, plasma and cosmic rays from which we are protected solely by our fragile atmosphere. You know, that space. Well, in 2021, the businessmen Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, in separate flights, spent a few glorious minutes in or near that space. Branson reached a height of 86.189 kilometres. Bezos went even higher, topping out at around 105 kilometres. Yep, that's right, 105 kilometres. Because Without wishing to be dismissive of the remarkable achievements of Branson, Bezos and their respective teams, 105 kilometres is roughly the distance between St Albans and Peterborough along the A1. In the absence of roadworks, that's a journey that can be completed in a Toyota Yaris, even my ancient Toyota Yaris, in less than an hour. We are surprisingly close to the edge of space. 
Indeed, space is even closer than Peterborough is from St Albans. According to NASA, space begins at the von Karman line, which is just 100 kilometres above sea level. But that is not my point. My point is this. What struck me when I read the initial reports of their respective trips was that neither Branson nor Bezos had insurance. They were both uninsured. Now, this is not because insurance for space tourism was not available in 2021. It was, and it still is available, should you be planning a trip. No, they were uninsured because neither Branson nor Bezos purchased a policy. They chose to be uninsured. At first blush, this is a surprise, because the trip was obviously risky. Furthermore, it clearly wasn't because they couldn't afford the premium. They are both men of immense wealth. Yet they chose to be uninsured. Now, at this point of the conversation, you're probably way ahead of me. You'll be shouting at me, they don't need to be insured because they are fabulously wealthy. And of course, you'd be right. But it is worth spending a moment unpacking that. Because what is insurance? It is an indemnity for financial loss. And the reality for Branson and Bezos is that they can stomach just about any financial loss. Because for the fabulously wealthy, a few million here or there is irrelevant. So of course they didn't buy insurance, because they simply didn't need it. They already had enough money to deal with any financial loss. From a financial perspective, they had nothing to fear. And for that reason, the rich have never needed insurance. Their wealth is its own insurance. No, the only people who need insurance are those who are vulnerable, or more precisely, those who are financially vulnerable. Those who are genuinely exposed to financial risk. Those who will suffer in the event that something goes wrong. Those who have something to fear. Because fundamentally, it is fear that drives the purchase of insurance. Chapter 2. The Imagined Consequences of Imagined Futures Humans are not unique in experiencing fear. Most animals, of course, experience fear, but it is usually in response to an immediate threat. When a gazelle sees a cheetah running towards it, the gazelle's little brain organises the release of stress hormones. Blood is then redirected away from certain internal organs towards the major muscles in the body, thereby enabling the gazelle to run and leap and hopefully avoid capture. We experience this form of fear as well, as when we step without thought into a road and suddenly see a bus bearing down on us. But the fear that provokes the purchase of insurance is a very different fear. It is a very specific human form of fear, and it contains two elements. First, we imagine a hypothetical future event. Then, we imagine bad consequences flowing from this hypothetical future event. This fear, in its extreme form, is called catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is, according to psychology today, a cognitive distortion that prompts people to jump to the worst possible conclusion, usually with very limited information or objective reason to despair. The word was coined by the psychologist Albert Ellis, and it rather beautifully sums up a feeling which most of us have probably felt at one time or another. That moment when we hugely overreact to a situation. And as a word, it also rolls off the tongue rather wonderfully. Catastrophize. Unsurprisingly, therefore, 
it is a word that has successfully entered everyday parlance. Not content with coining the word catastrophize, Albert Ellis also coined another word that means much the same thing. Awfulize. Now, seriously, how can one man come up with a word as glorious as catastrophize and one as monumentally grim as awfulize? Awfulize. I mean, it continues to be used by some psychologists, but thankfully it is restricted to academics because it is an unswervingly horrific word. Anyway, the process of catastrophizing, or awfulizing if you prefer, starts with two little words. What if? What if my dog is run over? What if I miss the court deadline? What if that tree falls on our house? What if I get cancer? What if my child never forgives me for what I had done? What if I lose my luggage on the way to Marbella? What if? What if? What if? Do the other higher primates catastrophize? Do chimpanzees sit in trees and fret about the many possible disasters that may await them tomorrow? Does a mother chimpanzee stare at her baby and imagine a future when that baby grows up and in response to a simple request to tidy their tree, shouts the chimpanzee equivalent of, I hate you? The simple answer is that we don't know. Not so long ago, academic opinion was that animals didn't really experience emotions at all. This was largely as a result of the theories of B.F. Skinner, who believed that our actions are determined by our interactions with the environment. This theory was known as behaviourism. If we do something that causes us pain, we are less likely to do it again. Animals are just complicated clockwork toys, to use a phrase from the biologist Colin Tudge. However, in the last few decades, primatologists such as Jane Goodall and Franz de Waal have shown that the behaviourist approach is too simplistic an explanation for the complex interactions between, for example, a group of chimpanzees. Jane Goodall, in particular, argued forcefully that individual chimps have individual personalities. Other researchers have reached similar conclusions in relation to other species, wolves, monkeys, hyenas, elephants, and so on. As Franz de Waal says, there is no sharp dividing line between human and animal emotions. As such, the emotions that we experience as humans exist on a continuum alongside the emotions that other animals experience. Anyone who's ever owned a dog would, I suspect, agree with that. We can therefore assume that our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, may have some emotional response to the future. But are they capable of catastrophizing? which involves the ability to visualise the imaginary consequences of imaginary futures. And I don't think that anyone has ever argued that our primate cousins are able to do that. So when did this start? When did we, as humans, learn to catastrophize? Chapter 3 a brief history of Homo sapiens. Let's hastily summarise the history of Homo sapiens, at least as currently hypothesised. And, and trust me, this is relevant to our story of insurance. Homo sapiens is, of course, the scientific name for you and me. And we emerged as a separate species about 300,000 years ago in Africa. Of course, Homo sapiens was not the first human species, there had been Homo habilis and Homo erectus and others, and we may not, therefore, 
have been the first to experience the cognitive development that I am about to describe. For example, Neanderthals, another human species, a Homo neanderthalensis, had even larger brains than us, so who knows what they were capable of. But sadly, Neanderthals are extinct, as are all the other human species, whereas we are still very much here. So I'm going to stick with Homo sapiens in this story. Now, initially, human expansion was slow and was restricted to the continent of Africa. But at some point, we developed a love of foreign travel. When that point was, is is uncertain, because there is no definitive chronology for human migration out of Africa. And what chronologies there are, are constantly changing to reflect each new archaeological discovery. But very roughly, around 125,000 years ago, humans made the very short crossing, possibly even a land bridge at the time, from modern-day Somalia, or more probably Djibouti, across the, the mouth of the Red Sea to Yemen. From there, humans expanded north to the Middle East, only to find their advance abruptly halted when they came across our old friends, the Neanderthals. Instead of moving north, therefore, humans moved east away from the nasty Neanderthals and their oversized brains, towards India and Southeast Asia, a journey that has more recently been copied by countless gap year students. By at least 48,000 years ago, humans had reached as far as Australia. And there is possible evidence from a site at Majidbebe in northern Australia that it might even have been 65,000 years ago, although this is disputed and other chronologies are available. Meanwhile, back in Europe, it wasn't until much later that we finally started to displace the Neanderthals. This was around 45,000 years ago, so 3,000 and possibly even 20,000 years after we had reached Australia. The fact that Homo sapiens inhabited Australia before it inhabited Europe is one of those strange quirks of historical chronology that people find surprising, similar to people's reaction when they first discover that the steam engine was invented before the bicycle. Anyway, the next key development occurred possibly 25,000 years ago, when humans walked across the land bridge from Siberia into Alaska over what is now the Bering Strait. And a mere 10,000 years after that, humans had completed the complete colonisation of both North and South America, right down to the tip of Patagonia. And by 10,000 to 15,000 BC, the vast majority of the globe had been inhabited by Homo sapiens. Obviously, we were at that stage spread rather thinly. Uh, The whole world population might have been no more than 15 million, but we were spread just about everywhere. The only places that we had not yet inhabited were remote islands. But in recent centuries, we've gradually ticked these off one by one as well. So Madagascar, possibly in 500 AD, New Zealand in 1320, and Antarctica in 1821. The last sizable landmass to be discovered was Sivanaya Zemlya, a 14,000 square mile archipelago off the coast of northern Russia, which was first seen in, would you believe it, 1913. And I guess technically, our wanderlust did not stop there, because a mere 56 years later, the span of a single human lifetime, we were on the moon. And now, of course, we're looking at Mars. What relevance does this have to insurance? Well, only this. The geographical ranges of animal populations constantly ebb and flow. 
but this is largely due to external forces such as overpopulation, climate change, evolutionary development, dietary changes, accidental stowage, and, and, and such like. But humans, well, humans must have chosen to expand. Consider briefly the, the discovery of Australia. To reach Australia required a sea crossing of at least 90 kilometres. That is not achieved without conscious thought and planning. It requires the design and construction of a seagoing vessel and also an awareness that the journey will require sufficient supplies to keep everyone alive. Which means that by 48,000 years ago, at the latest, our ancestors must have learned to say, what if? What if we sailed towards the horizon? These ancient people were able to visualise a future, a skill that quite possibly had been experienced by no previous species in the history of planet Earth. And, and from there, surely, it was only a short step towards the fear of the future, towards the existential what-if that is at the root of all insurance. What if something goes wrong. Chapter 4. The Russian Word for Insurance Now, insurance cannot answer all possible what-ifs. If your dog is run over, insurance will not help you with the grief of seeing your cockapoo in pain. But pet insurance will cover the vet's costs. And if you miss a court deadline, insurance will not soothe your damaged professional ego. But professional indemnity insurance will cover the loss to the client. If a tree falls on your house, insurance will not remove the inconvenience of a roofless home. But property insurance will cover the cost of the repairs. Insurance provides a solution, but it is only a partial solution. And that solution is financial in nature. Because insurance is designed to be a response to our financial or material fears. And this can be explicitly seen in the Russian word for insurance, strakovanya. As pointed out by the foreign affairs specialist, Dr Fiona Hill, in her 2022 Ruth lecture on freedom from fear, the literal meaning of strakovanya is preparation against fear. The word strakovania therefore gets to the heart of insurance. Insurance helps us to deal with our fear. Now, for much of humanity's existence, of course, this type of fear, this fear of financial or material loss, simply didn't exist. Because for the first 290,000 of our 300,000 years on Earth, we organised ourselves in groups, initially as families and subsequently as hunter-gatherers. And the evidence is that hunter-gatherers were, and are, brilliant at gathering food, even in the hardest of times. The anthropologist James Sussman, in his book on the history of work, suggests that hunter-gatherers may have been so good at hunting and gathering that they worked no more than 15 hours a week. Of course, they would have had fears, the fear of broken bones, the fear of lions, the fear of death, these would all have been ever-present. And of course, there would have been the normal fears that are part and parcel of the ebb and flow of human relationships. What if my friend suddenly hates me? What if my lover chooses to love someone else? 
but none of these fears were material in nature. Because the hunter-gatherer's material needs were limited to food, fire and shelter. And they had the means to meet those needs. Indeed, their means far exceeded their needs. They knew the land on which they lived and hunted and they knew how to obtain sustenance from the animals and plants on that land. In that respect, hunter-gatherers were the same as modern-day billionaires. They had more than enough to meet their basic material needs. Chapter 5. My Life as a Farmer So, let's recap. By 48,000 years ago at the latest, Homo sapiens had learned to imagine a hypothetical future. We know this because that is the latest date for the arrival of Homo sapiens in Australia. By then, humans must have learned to say what if, and it is quite possible that these humans are also the first to catastrophize. However, for as long as humans remained in self-sufficient tribes, this fear was restricted in scope. There was no need for insurance because there was no fear of material loss. This brings us to around 10,000 years ago or so. Now, in 1994, a German archaeologist, Klaus Schmidt, visited a site in southern Turkey, around 50 kilometres from the border with Syria. The site had been discovered 30 years earlier, in 1963, but its importance had not been recognised at that time. The site was Gobleki Tepe. Gobleki Tepe consists of 20 megalithic enclosures, with around 200 limestone pillars linked by dry stone walls. Each pillar is carved with images of reptiles, mammals and birds. This would by itself ensure that Gobleki Tepe was a site of huge importance. However, the specific reason for Gobleki Tepe's importance is that it dates from around 9000 BC, at a time when humans were, for the first time, creating permanent human settlements. Yet, the evidence is that Gobleki Tepe itself was not a permanent village or town. No, it, it appears likely that Gobleki Tepe was designed and constructed by hunter-gatherers and was inhabited seasonally, perhaps at a time when large herds of gazelle grazed on the nearby plains, a time of plenty. With the hunting easy, the hunter-gatherers would have gathered at Gobleki Tepe, old friends gathering to share ideas and to gossip, to laugh and to feast. And then when the herds moved on, they themselves dispersed, returning to a nomadic lifestyle. But it was an early sign that things were changing, that human development was taking a new turn. Some authors, such as the geographer Jared Diamond in his book Guns, Germs and Steel, narrate a story in which human development progresses seamlessly from bands of hunter-gatherers to tribal villages to chiefdoms that spanned multiple villages and eventually to states with bureaucracies and centralised decision-making processes. This linear narrative implies that the changes were inevitable and that once started, the outcome was always bound to be the centralised state, that we humans are subject to deterministic processes over which we have no control. More recently, this thesis has been challenged by the archaeologist David Wingrow and the anthropologist David Graeber in their book The Dawn of Everything. They argue 
that ancient peoples were more than capable of deciding for themselves how they should organise and cooperate. But fascinating though this is, it is not our story. Our story concerns the evolution of fear. And to continue that story, we need to travel next to Cattle Hoyuk. Situated to the west of Goblehi Tepe, but still in southern Turkey, Cattle Hoyuk is described as the world's oldest city, founded in around 7500 BC. To put that into context, both Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid were constructed about 5,000 years later, in or around 2500 BC. In other words, we, you and I, are closer in time to the stonemasons of Wiltshire and Giza than they were to the first residents of Catalhoyuk. In contrast to the hunter-gatherers of Gobleki Tepe, Catalhoyuk's economy was more closely aligned with humanity's latest invention, agriculture. Now, in modern parlance, we would call agriculture a disruptive technology. Indeed, arguably, the most disruptive technology that there has ever been. As anyone who has read Yuval Noah Harari's books will know, the agricultural revolution was transformational for humanity, forming the bridge between the ancient world and the modern, between prehistory and history. However, as Harari also points out, this transformation came at a cost, most notably increased levels of disease and a lower life expectancy. But alongside these very physical consequences, there would also have been mental consequences. Because as humans increasingly relied upon agriculture, new fears would have evolved. What if my crops fail? What if the locusts come? What if my animals fall sick? What if I fall sick? In short, the needs of the individual were increasing. Life as a farmer was more complex than that of a hunter-gatherer. Crops need planting, tending, harvesting, storing. Tools need to be made and kept sharp. Planning needs to be undertaken on an annual basis. But despite the increasing complexity of life for the individual, the village as a whole would still have been largely self-sufficient most of the time. If one person was ill, another could take their place. If someone needed clothes repaired or childcare, a neighbour would have helped. Even for Catalhoyuk, this would have been true. Catalhoyuk was larger than a village. At its peak, it had a population of up to perhaps 10,000 people. But it had no public buildings, was entirely residential and appears to have been largely egalitarian. The residents of Catalhoyuk were, so it seems, in it together. Yes, their needs were increasing, but the collective nature of their lives meant that their combined means still exceeded their combined needs. As individuals, they were vulnerable, but as a community, they were not, or at least they were not as vulnerable. As such, there needed to be one more development before insurance made its appearance on the historical stage. Chapter 6. Finally, a fear of financial failure. We must now travel south from Gobleki Tepe and Katalhoyuk to the area known as Mesopotamia. 
Mesopotamia means between the rivers, and it describes the area of land between the River Tigris, which flows to the east of modern-day Iraq, and the River Euphrates, which flows to the west. It's a huge area, so academics have traditionally split it between Upper and Lower Mesopotamia, with the dividing line being modern-day Baghdad. Now, we're more interested in Lower Mesopotamia, which is the area stretching from Baghdad down to the Persian Gulf. This was the birthplace of Sumerian civilization. Wikipedia describes a civilization as a society under governance by a state that has developed a culture, language, writing system, and currency. Now, of course, the term civilization is a controversial one. David Wengrow and David Graeber, whom I have already mentioned, define civilizations as extended moral communities. And they point out that these communities do not require the existence of state governance. But for our purposes, we can pass by that debate. All we need to know is that the Sumerians created something on a scale not previously seen, at least not in Mesopotamia. Sumer had been first settled around 5000 BC, and the civilization, let's call it that for the moment, survived for over 3000 years until around 1900 BC. Instead of a single city, such as that founded at Catalhoyuk, the Sumerians founded numerous cities, the most famous of which was perhaps Uruk. And they created an infrastructure that linked these cities and an economy based on agriculture that supported them. As far as we're aware, the Sumerians did not invent insurance, but they certainly laid the foundations for it. In particular, during this period, there were three crucial developments. The development of writing, the development of trade, and the development of urban living. I just want to discuss each of these briefly because they are all essential prerequisites for insurance. So first, the development of writing. This occurred perhaps around 3300 BC, possibly in Uruk. Sumerian writing was formed by pressing the edge of a reed into a clay tablet forming characteristic wedge shapes. This is known as cuneiform based on the word cuneus, which is the Latin for wedge, and there are hundreds of thousands of these cuneiform tablets that which have survived. These include the poem, known as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is perhaps the earliest example of fictional literature, but they also include tablets that record the allocation of beer, the sale of land, and numerous payment receipts. These more utilitarian tablets enabled administration to develop. Of course, administration does not require writing. For example, the Incas never developed writing, but they nonetheless managed to administer a huge empire. But writing undoubtedly makes it easier. As an aside, the Sumerians used the sexagesimal or base 60 system of counting. So we have the Sumerians to thank for having 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, and 360 degrees in a circle. It also inspired the sexagesimal system used in cryptography of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So anyway, that's the first of the three crucial developments, the development of writing. The second is the development of trading. Now, of course, there had been low-level trading for many hundreds, possibly even thousands of years, but the Sumerians took it to the next level. They imported obsidian from Turkey, lapis lazuli from Afghanistan, wood from Lebanon, 
jewellery from India, even resin from Mozambique. And trade was not just an additional extra. It became a career with full-time merchants and traders and a financial system to support it. So that's the development of writing and the development of trading. And the third of the three crucial developments was the development of urban living. The city of Uruk had a population of up to 50,000 people, perhaps even more. And unlike the much smaller Catalhoyuk, it was not egalitarian. Instead, it had all the trappings of central administrative control. So for the purposes of our story, this had two consequences. First, individuals had to specialise. We see the development of full-time scribes, leather workers, potters, or, as already mentioned, merchants. Second, individuals lost their support systems. In a city, you are on your own. You do not have the economic security of a hunter-gatherer tribe or a close-knit village of farmers. So, for the first time, an individual's needs outstripped their means. As such, the majority of city dwellers were no longer self-sufficient, either individually or even within their network of friends. Instead, they were economically dependent. They needed currency to buy food, utensils, clothes and such like. And the immediate consequence of that would be a new form of fear. What if I do not have the money? So finally, humans developed the fear of financial or material failure. And this fear of poverty was a very real fear. There is evidence that Sumerian temples housed and employed the urban needy, widows, orphans, and those crippled by debt or disease or disability. So many of the ingredients for insurance were now in place. From the perspective of the insured, there was the awareness of financial vulnerability and the ability to catastrophize about that financial vulnerability. From the perspective of the insurer, there was the development of administrative techniques and the ability to record debts. Indeed, for all we know, it is possible that the Sumerians were the first to invent insurance. And if they had survived just a little longer, then they would almost certainly have done so. But sadly, at least for the Sumerians, their days were numbered. Ultimately, what did for them was their failure to develop their irrigation technology because their land was poorly drained and the soil became increasingly saline. This led to crop failures, and between 2100 BC and 1700 BC, it is estimated that the Sumerian population fell by 60%. The Sumerian land was taken first by the Elamites, then the Amorites, and finally by the Babylonians. Chapter 7. The Mother of Prostitutes Ah, Babylon. Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. For those who are familiar with the story of the Jewish scriptures, Babylon will be known as the empire that sacked and destroyed Jerusalem in 597 BC. As a result, in the Bible, Babylon became a metaphor for all that is corrupt and evil. In the New Testament, 
in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, Babylon is described as the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And earlier this year, there was a film called Babylon, which was described as a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess set during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. And that sort of sums up Babylon's reputation. According to the movie app Letterboxd, there are 14 other films simply called Babylon and a further 36 that have Babylon in the title. Contrast that with Assyria, Babylon's northern neighbour and long-time rival for regional supremacy. Assyria had also invaded Israel in 721 BC and therefore also had a starring role as one of the baddies of the Bible. Indeed, it was the Assyrians who carried off 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel into historical oblivion, the mysterious lost tribes of Israel. But no one names films after the Assyrians. There have been exactly zero films with the name Assyria in them. Indeed, if you ever want an object lesson in the power of branding, you have it right there with Babylon and Assyria. Anyway, we're not interested in Assyria, nor even the Babylon of the Bible, with its Ishtar gates and its ziggurat. No, we need to go back a further 1,100 years, shortly after the demise of Sumeria, to the Babylon of Hammurabi, sixth king of the first dynasty of Babylon, who ruled for 42 years from 1,792 BC to 1,750 BC. Hammurabi, or Hammurabi, as Tom Holland pronounces it on the Rest is History podcast, became king at the age of 18, at a time when his kingdom was embarrassingly small. I mean, basically, it was nothing more than a city-state. But Hammurabi proved to be rather good at crushing his neighbours, and in due course, all of Mesopotamia fell under his control. In many respects, though, Babylon simply stood on the shoulders of its predecessor, Sumeria. In particular, Babylon continued to develop the Sumerian trade routes. Because Babylon was located on an alluvial plain, it needed to import all its stone, metal, timber, wine, metals, jewels, cotton, linen and perfumes. Babylon therefore traded with far distant lands, modern-day Lebanon, India, Tibet. It, it even imported silk from China. And trade in those days was not a simple task. There would have been trade up and down the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, but it largely had to be conducted overland, along trade routes, over vast distances with large numbers of camels taking many months. It needed full-time traders, and of course, it needed finance. So traders would borrow money from merchants and lenders at interest rates of, say, I don't know, 20% per annum. And these trips were dangerous. Traders would have been well aware of their vulnerability to robbery and attack. And if they lost their goods or their money, they would be unable to repay their lenders, resulting in their pauperization and the possible enslavement of their families. And this created a very genuine fear of financial failure. And unsurprisingly, they asked themselves the obvious question, what if? So this is where we find ourselves. 
We have individuals who are taking financial risks, but without the support network of a tribe or a village. These individuals are able to catastrophize and they are able to imagine multiple disasters that might befall them on their trading journeys. And more than that, they have a genuine reason to fear the consequences of these imagined disasters. Now, if only there was a financial product that would help them in this situation. Yep, I think we all know what they needed. They needed insurance. And sure enough, insurance is what they got. Chapter 8. If you squint, you can just about see insurance. In the Louvre in Paris, room 227 of the Richelieu wing, to be exact, there is a basalt column which is two and a quarter metres high, or seven foot four and a half inches if you're American. The top section of this black column is sculpted to show the image of Hammurabi speaking with Shamash, the Babylonian god of justice. Or that that's just one theory of the identities of the two figures. Other theories are available. And beneath that, on the remainder of the column, are carved about 4,130 lines of cuneiform text, forming what is known as the Code of Hammurabi. The code was composed towards the end of Hammurabi's reign, possibly around 1755 BC, and it is the longest and best organised legal text from the ancient Near East. It was not the first legal text, and it is not complete, but it is the best that we currently have. Its 282 legal statements cover topics as diverse as administrative law, offences against the person, real estate, family law, professional negligence, and so on. And unsurprisingly, the code also covers commercial law, including the position of the long-distance trader who had borrowed money. So, what was the basic rule? Well, unsurprisingly, the basic rule was that a trader who had borrowed money had to repay the money with interest. As such, if the trader lost the money through negligence or poor deals, then the risk remained with the trader. But in response, the trader might say, but what if? What if I am robbed or a foreign power confiscates all my goods? Well, in that situation, the trader had a choice. The trader could keep the risk and pay the standard rate of interest, or it could pay a higher rate of interest but pass the risk of theft or confiscation back to the lender. So, in return for a higher rate of interest, a premium, if you will, the lender would take the risk of a specified peril. Or at least, that is what it looks as though the Code of Hammurabi is saying. However, as Meredith Brasher says in her episode on Hammurabi, in her excellent podcast, Insurance vs. History, there are an awful lot of unanswered questions. But for present purposes... It looks as though the Code of Hammurabi might possibly, for the first time, have created a financial solution to the question, what if? Now, as we will explain in the next episode, this was not insurance as we know it today. It was a form of proto-insurance, where the insurance aspect was a term of the loan, part and parcel of the contractual transaction. 
If one was adopting a generous approach, you could say that it was similar in some respects to what we might now call embedded insurance. But however one describes it, it was, or might have been, the first step in the insurer's journey. In response to the fear of financial ruin, the Babylonians had created, or at least had developed, a form of protection, a form of indemnity that looked a little like insurance if you squinted hard enough. For the first time since the formation of our planet 4.6 billion years ago, our world had a form of insurance. Oh, glorious and marvellous day. Thank you for listening to this first meditation. In the next meditation, entitled An Irreligious Faith, we will examine the continued development of insurance from the Babylonians through to medieval Europe. And we will particularly focus on the surprising ways in which humanity's relationship with insurance parallels our relationship with religion. Here's an extract to whet your appetite. Indulgences were grants or letters sold by the church to allow people to speed up their progress through purgatory to heaven after their deaths. It was a form of afterlife insurance. One of the leading salesmen for indulgences, the Dominican monk Johann Tetzel, would say, Won't you part with even a farthing? It won't bring you money, but rather a divine and immortal soul, whole and secure in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you pay me money, you will in return receive a promise of protection for your soul. How different, really, is that from a refrigerator salesperson selling you a three-year insurance policy to cover the cost of repairs? Won't you part with even six pounds, they say? It won't save your divine and immortal soul, but it will give you money if your fridge breaks down. In other words, if you pay me money, you will in return receive a promise of protection for your newly purchased white goods. Now that's something to feel smeg about. So I hope you'll join us on Thursday for the next meditation on insurance and society. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>